Welcome to the Brown Posey Press Show, part of the Books Big Network, a program dedicated to independent and self-published authors. This show will examine new and unique works of literature, learn about their creators, and discuss the industry. And now your host, Tori Gates. Author Joel Burkett joins us today as we wrap up a series of talks and events for his books, and in particular, his latest, Reap the Wind. The fourth in a series of legal and environmental thrillers, Burkett puts his characters in nearly impossible situations, with each having to come to a decision. Whether it is what the reader expects is something that needs to be read. We're at Joel's home in Harrisburg today. Thank you for having me. And thank you for having me. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be on your show, Tori. And yeah, and I mean, you uh, you lead the league in being on my show, which is cool because it, you want to be on it. So that's... <laughs> All right. I, I've enjoyed doing your show in the past and looking forward to today's discussion. Okay. Well, let us first recap for those who weren't there or who haven't watched the YouTube video yet. Um, there was a book release event just a few days ago at the Midtown Scholar Bookstore right here in Harrisburg. I got the opportunity to be the moderator, which I have not done in some time in, in that particular way. Uh, first of all, I think we had said that it, it went off pretty well. Uh, how did you feel going into it? Did, were you nervous at all? Because you, you certainly didn't show it. No, I, I've done that before, and I certainly enjoyed doing that again. And uh, I, I would call you more my interrogator than my moderator. <laughs> uh, but it was something that uh, I looked forward to, and I was happy to do it. We had a very good uh, local turnout. And I checked, and we had about 135 people on YouTube Live. So we had a very good turnout. That's cool. And yeah, I mean, that was an interesting um, format because we were very, very live. And the feeling of a kind of expectant audience can be interesting. I kind of found myself watching the audience. Anybody who watches the YouTube video is going to see me sort of looking out a lot. And that might have been my own nervousness, but it was more I wanted to sort of gauge the reaction and just see what people were doing and the the cool thing was they paid attention i mean obviously you had some friends there you had some people who knew you really well but i liked that they were a little expectant but at the same time they paid attention they were like getting into what we were talking about and that that's always good well it's a lot easier to read the room when you're live than when you're on radio yes it is very true <laughs> it's actually because uh in radio, we, we do the one-to-one -one communication. It's the person, there is a person sitting across from you. You talk to them. It's not everybody out there as, that was one of the first rules I was taught. It's not, hey, everybody. It's not everyone out there in radio land. No, it's this person. You can make it whomever you want. And as long as you remember that, it's actually pretty easy. And after 40 years in this business, when I'm behind a microphone now, it's like, I don't really see anyone. I don't see anything. I'm just kind of like, I kind of go into, um, there's the bubble. And I, I was just thinking if somebody was asking me about it just recently. And I said, there's a, there's an Irish folk singer named Christy Moore who used to say that when he got on stage and performed, and this happened when I was in a band, you just sort of create this sphere of energy around you. And you deliver, you send it out. And, I think my old band did that. We used to think of it kind of like that. So that's the way I, I handle it. I'm not really 
I'm not as nervous as I once was. And for the first few years of being on a microphone, you could tell I didn't always mask my nervousness, but you get there after a while. No, for you though, it was like, for I was thinking, you know, it's like sort of your talks can be similar, I suppose, in presentation when you were in court as an attorney for so many years. Do you ever use it like that? I, uh, I'm just used to standing up in front of a group and speaking, whether it's court or whether it's a meeting, uh, whether it's uh, two people I'm meeting with or 10 people that I'm meeting with. I probably did, oh, easily 100 different presentations, maybe 200 presentations as a lawyer on legal continuing education. So, I mean, I'm used to getting up in front of a crowd. Very second nature. Uh, it has been, and it's funny how it comes back to you after a while. It doesn't take very long for me to have it come back. That's cool. And yeah, you sort of like, um, we're going to get into reap the wind and some of the elements of, of your stories because they do draw on that. Uh, the other thing that really has always been remarkable to me is, uh, the ability to just navigate, uh, because like when, when we got to the Q&A session, you wondered if there was going to be somebody that was just going to throw an interesting curveball, either by design or just by not meaning to, just asking the question. But I found the questions were, were pretty straightforward, but they were also some good questions about your writing and about your work and also about the environment and, and what has been so important to your work over the years. I was very happy for the questions. I, I, in fact, that's probably my favorite part. And I think the audience's favorite part as well, because, you know, I can decide in advance or you as the interrogator, the moderator can decide in advance, you know, the list of questions. But that may not be what the audience wants to hear. Mm-hmm. I mean, hopefully we've in mind. So I, I really do look forward to audience questions. Mm-hmm. And that's just something you're going to get. I mean, I've moderated discussions at events in the past, and uh, you just have to take the question and do the best you can with it. And if you don't know, it's it's probably better just to admit that you don't. And you hope that you get some help from somebody else on the panel or someone in the audience. And uh it's it is fun in a very unique way and it's it's challenging but it's uh, and and we do fall back don't we on on our instinct because you know in court you would have gotten questions or a line of questioning from from someone of hmm, where is he coming from you 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 have to kind of work with that well usually i do the questioning when i'm in court <laughs> Rarely am I in a situation where I'm being asked questions unless it's by a judge. Right. And then they typically ask you a very, very tough question and you stand there and try not to look stupid and try to give as good an answer as you can. And you really can't say, I'll get back to you, judge. Mm. And that's, and then, then there's the person on the other side that sometimes comes up with something and you're just, you know, it's, I've never been in a courtroom session really. And it, it isn't always like Perry Mason. It isn't always like um, the, the legal shows you see on television, I would gather. Rarely is it like Perry Mason. Um, when I wrote um, A Mid-Rage, uh, my story about uh, coal mining, I have a, a, an interrogation of a witness that to me was my ideal questioning answer of a witness. And Probably, if you were looking at it in terms of actual time that it might have transpired in a courtroom, it probably was 20 minutes, a half an hour of courtroom time. It probably took me 
weeks and weeks of writing and editing and coming back to it and getting it exactly right, which of course never, ever happens in reality. So obviously one of the things that we get to do as writers, and you're a writer as well, one of the things we get to do as writers is that we really get to hone the words and make sure that our characters are saying exactly what we want them to say. And we're going to talk about the latest of these creations. Uh, Joel Burkett is my guest on the Brown Posey Press Show. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Sunbury Press Books is the home of independent and diverse authors. Check out the agency books imprint for detective stories, tales of law enforcement, espionage, terrorism, spy thrillers, and more. Among the works available, KGB Banker by William Burton McCormick, The Apologist, a Luke Lundy novel by A.A. Weiss, and Douglas Brody's Sand or A Once Upon a Time in the Jazz Age. Find these and other fascinating books at sunburypress.com. My guest is Joel Burkett, and we're going to talk about the fourth of his series of environmental, uh, legal thrillers and adventures, Reap the Wind. I want to try to take a different angle because we've talked about this so much. Um, You brought elements of the courtroom drama, and the action in the field really shifted over in in Reap the Wind. Uh, The thriller element takes charge in this one. Now, was that the plan? For this one, did you want to step into that direction? I really wanted to get away from the legal in legal thriller, although there's an awful lot in here about the interaction and the mindset of lawyers. One of the things I really did was a deep dive into the minds of lawyers, what they're thinking about in about being lawyers, not necessarily working on a case. Josh Goldberg has some real serious doubts about what it is that he's doing. We also hear uh, in a very deep way from Jeff Roberts, his best friend and and travel companion, about his feelings about being a lawyer. So it's a legal thriller in the sense that it's a story about lawyers, and we get deeply into their minds. But so far as the thriller part is concerned, that was really what this was all about. I mean, the story is really about this horrendous hurricane, Hurricane Epsilon, and how it um, is the worst hurricane uh, ever, and it's been caused by climate change. We know that from the very beginning of the story. And uh, Josh has to drive to Cincinnati, uh, where his girlfriend has been unconscious in a hospital, maybe having their baby. And he has to drive through the hurricane itself. He's got to drive through a driving rainstorm and hail and snow and tornado. And one of the things I really wanted to do was I really wanted to put the thrill in Thriller. So I absolutely um, made a point of getting into and having significant scenes dealing with these different uh, catastrophic events. And one of the things that is really cool is the complexity of the characters that was built into them. Yeah, Josh is, is that person, and really each character has it. He has a decision to make, and that's the basis of so much of, of any story is what is the main character going to do? What choices does he have? What's he going to do about things? And like, I'm going to drive through this storm from hell to get to Cincinnati by any means necessary to be with Keisha and, and to be with our child and all of this. And it seems completely out of character for a rational person, but we're not talking about a rational situation. We're talking about, here's the human element of what Josh has at his core. And it's such a unique 
it's 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 a unique thing that's relatable to anyone. But then you 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 amp it up so much with all the stuff that has to happen. <laughs> well, you know, it, uh, so many thrillers are plot driven. You know, you've got something that happens, and then the hero rushes to deal with that something that happens, and then something else happens as a result of that. And so they're plot driven and. Uh, my story is also plot driven because we have the hurricane, we've got the rainstorm, we've got all the other things going on. But one of the things I really, really wanted to do was get deeply into the minds of my characters. And so you do. So we get very deeply into Josh's mind. It's what's known uh, as deep point of view. We get as deeply as I possibly could into his mind and his character. And we see him changing from the beginning of the story uh, to the end of the story. And the same really with several of my characters. The same with, uh, Jeff, who, you know, is also going through some transformations from the beginning of the story till the end. And also, in particular, with Keisha, who is, uh, Josh's girlfriend, who's having this baby. And we see her go through some transformations as well, serious transformations. So I, I made a point of delving deeply into the uh, minds of my characters so that the characters are you know, don't take um, uh, second place to the activity going on around them. Right. Well, one of the things that was cool was that, especially with Josh and Keisha, you divided up the chapters to let each of them take the lead, and we get to go into their minds. And Josh, for example, as I had noted, was he seems like he's a pretty straight-up guy. He's trying to do the right thing. And he's trying to be a good attorney, but he's also now trying to think about, am I going to be able to be a good husband? Am I going to be able to be a good dad and all of this? And there's that, there's all of the things that are just swirling about him. And then Keisha was such an interesting one because their differences really made for a cool story of how did these two get together and how are they going to make this work? Because you can tell Keisha is her mindset is is a, is a different is a different thing, and she is being forced to sort of confront her own doubts. And she's in an interesting position because here's a woman who is eight months pregnant, getting ready to give birth to her child with Josh, and uh, she is. You would think that that the easy road for her would be simply to say, you know, Josh, let's get married and run off and have a good life together. And I'm not going to give away anything about the ending of the story, but let's just say that that she has serious doubts about that eventuality. Uh, Josh, on the other hand, makes up his mind. He's he's going to drive a thousand miles through a hurricane to be with her. Now, there's a, he's got another motivating factor who's uh, in the hospital and who may be giving birth to their baby. And he's sort of on the fence about whether he's going to drive all the way to Cincinnati. And then he finds out that the former love of her life has walked into her room as her obstetrician. And he doesn't trust him. And he doesn't, to a certain extent, I think he doesn't trust Keisha, even though considering the circumstances, you would think there's no doubt about it. Uh, so he kind of is reading between the lines in her text messages, and he decides under all of those circumstances, despite the terrible weather, that he's going to get in the car and drive up there to be with her, to be with the baby, and also to protect her from uh, her uh, doctor, Anthony Souter. And isn't that the, the the emotional thing? It's it's that all of a sudden this is thrown into the mix, and he's like, "What's going to happen if I don't get there?" I'm- That's actually a really good way to put it, and I think that um, 
it's that plus the uh, what I think what I think are human reactions. Yes, I mean he's these are human beings. These are not characters who are nothing more than hired guns or nothing more than karate experts. These are people who have real human uh, emotions and real human complexity. And there are a lot of different factors that go into the decision-making that they have. So, um, you know, he, he acknowledges at some point early on, here he is sitting in the Four Seasons Hotel in Houston. You know, they've got plenty of food. They've taken care of the hurricane outside. He could stay there for as long as he needs to stay. The hotel is mostly empty anyway. And here he is sitting in the bar with his friend Jeff, and he's thinking about what he's going to do. And, and But he decides, despite all of that, that he needs to be with Keisha. And part of it, certainly one of the motivating factors, not the only, but one of the motivating factors is that for some reason he just decides he can't trust Anthony. Exactly. And that brings us to Jeff, who is kind of his foil and becomes his wingman in this adventure. And Jeff is a he's a pretty visible character. And he, I think, again, here's a character that people can recognize because his drinking problem, his drug issues, he is basically like a functioning workaholic in, you know, in that he shows up, he does his job, but on the other side of it, he's a mess. And I think there's a lot of people that can relate to that. Jeff is a top notch real estate lawyer. He's an extraordinarily looking guy. I describe him in the story as uh, if Reggie Jean page was a uh, running back, a star running back, you know, Heisman winning, you know, uh, football player, that would be Jeff Roberts. And he's a um, smart guy. He's a good looking guy. And he has demons of his own. He's uh, addicted to alcohol. He's addicted to drugs, which, by the way, is relatively and unfortunately commonplace among lawyers. There are uh, a substantial percentage of lawyers who have drug and alcohol addictions. And to the extent that it is um, something that the Bar Association is constantly working on to try to deal with. And I know over the course of my career that I have uh, met and worked with a number of lawyers who were drug and alcohol addicted. And for the most part, uh, they're high-functioning people. These are people who can have two double scotches at lunchtime and go off and have a meeting and seem to come across you know, coherently, you know, enough, enough alcohol to make a normal person conk out, you know, and they're, they're functioning just fine. So these are high functioning uh, addicts. Is the percentage for the legal profession higher compared to others? Do you know? I think it is relatively, I don't know what the number is and that's something I need to find out, but I think it is relatively because it's such a high stress job. And I think a lot of uh, lawyers, unfortunately, um, medicate themselves to deal with the stress. And that's something I have seen to some extent in, in broadcasting. We have, I'm not going to name any names, but you know, we've, I've run into enough people that had some issues. And for a lot of us, it's also, it's not just the physical issues. It's also mental issues. It's like, there is the fear of losing their job. There is the fear of looking less than. So we, we sometimes self-medicate. We sometimes proscribe things because you don't want it to get out, especially in a, in the day of social media of you don't want to get out that, Oh, you're having a problem. You're trying to get treatment for this. And then all of a sudden your life becomes something that is no one else's business, but 
people are going to mind it. And then it becomes, does this affect my job? Does this affect me getting signed to another contract? This Does this affect me maybe going to move up in the company? And they're going to look at that. And uh, I I can think of one or two people I worked with that, in one case, one of them quite embraced his demons, and Jeff just sort of started to remind me of this guy, and he just recently passed on. But it was, you know, it, it brings into focus something people need to, it, we don't need to see it as a, a sin. We need to see it more as, yes, this is an illness. This is for real. It's an illness and very often relates to stress and to other factors. Many of the ones that you described, you look at other high uh, stress uh, professions, lawyers uh, are, are one of them, but doctors, dentists, anybody in a high stress job, you very often find that they're self-medicating, whether it's alcohol or uh, drugs or sex or whatever it might be that they're doing, but they're self-medicating and, um, but they may still be very high functioning. And that's, that's Jeff. Yeah. He sort of gives you the idea that he can, like you were saying, he can, he can have several drinks and then he can go right in and do a presentation and not give that image of being even the slightest bit impaired. And that says a lot about tolerance. Right. (laughs) Um, Speaking of one other person we need to add in who pushes herself into the business. uh, Here's Josh's boss, Diane, who decides I want to ride and I need to get to wherever. And it's like, We've, Diane is is unique in that, first of all, she's a, a female boss, still probably something not as seen as much, but seeing more of as we go by. But here is someone who is also quite willing to do whatever it takes to win. Diane Scanlon, antagonist, you know, just like... Um in uh, Jack London's uh, To Build a Fire, The Weather Was the Antagonist. Yes. Uh, Here, Diane is another antagonist, the human antagonist. She is everyone's, a combination of all the worst bosses you've ever had, (laughs) all smushed into one character. And uh, I mean, I I took, not that I ever had a bad boss, if anybody's listening in, but I took um, all the qualities of bosses that I've had and bosses I've heard about from other people. And I thought, all right, if you could make that one person, that would be Diane. And then I added to that several other factors. One is that she's an attractive woman. I, I call her a 2,000-pound uh, gorilla in a 105-pound runner's body. Wow. And uh, she is um, one of the know, most successful lawyers in the firm, which means then that the way law firms work is that they love her and they're willing to overlook some of her issues and foibles. And she's a miserable person who can fire somebody on a whim and has done that, you know, and she does other things that I won't get into because it's part of the story, but she does other things that are just, you know, awful things. And, um, she plays people off of each other and does all of the things that, that bad bosses do. And, uh, she's a very critical character. She, um, she, uh, it's a Friday when the story starts, uh, actually really, uh, happening. And when the hurricane is really taking place and she has to be in Philly, uh, for a, a meeting with a Norwegian billionaire, <laughs> And uh, she's got to be there on Monday for that. And she doesn't want to take the meeting uh, by Zoom. She wants to be in person for that meeting. He's flying in from Norway for that. So, uh, Which she, I can get. I can get she wants to be there. She, wants she should to, be. Right. She wants to be there. And she figures she doesn't want to miss her chance because for another 
hopping on his private airplane in the afternoon and he's going to LA for another meeting. So he's only going to be there for a few hours and she, she needs to be there in the morning. So she hijacks this, what's, what was about to become a buddy movie of Jeff and Josh, you know, traveling through this hurricane. And she becomes the third person in the car and she's miserable even in terms of the, the music that she wants. So Jeff and Josh, uh, kind of, revert to 18 year old mode in the sense yeah. that that they're sitting in the front seat one of them calls shotgun and he's going to ride shotgun and they decide what the music's going to be she wants of course something entirely different in terms of music and uh you know and they point out to her well not only that but we get to choose which restaurants we go to the driver gets to choose the restaurants so i i kind of flipped back to um teenage mode it's and, it's the unwritten rules those unwritten rules unwritten and, rule is driver chooses the music wingman does whatever right. if you're in the back you shut up and and she of course <laughs> in a way she doesn't mind because she doesn't want to drive and she's sitting in the back she has a half a foot high of paperwork that she's working on back there and and uh, at some point josh figures out that she's going to bill more in in to her clients while she's sitting in the back of the car driving to cincinnati than uh than you know a, a normal person would so she's going to be making all this money anyway while she's back there but she's she's just a pain in the butt the whole way <laughs> and sometimes you need that because then then it leads to the other confrontations and the other fun things and and josh getting his own back maybe We'll have to see what happens there. Uh, we're going to move into part three in just a moment. Joel Perkett is my guest here on the uh, Sunbury Press Book Show. We'll be right back. Sunbury Press Books brings you the work of independent authors. If fiction, whether historical, murder mysteries, or spy thrillers take your fancy, check out Milford House Press. Releases of interest include The Class Assignment is Murder by Carolyn Kleinman, Dead Man Who Walks Away, Parts 1 and 2 by Herbert Dean Ely, or The Immigrant's Wife by J.B. Brooks. Explore by clicking on the Milford House tab at sunburypress.com. Joel Burkett is my guest on the Brown Posey Press Show, and we are continuing to talk about uh, his latest book, Reap the Wind, and uh, in our final bit, some of the influences that have made their way into this book, you detailed them in our talk, and they were further than I could have imagined. Uh, I think we talked about this being an odyssey for these three people, and you commented on the influence Homer's work has had on you. Tell us a little more about that. When I when I started planning to write this book, I thought, well, I could just write a, a travelogue kind of story, or... I thought, well, maybe I could base this somehow on Homer's The Odyssey. And that's what I did. And so it doesn't track the Odyssey page by page, but there are many characters that are recognizable to people who are familiar with The Odyssey. They're recognizable uh, in that regard. And there's some puns that I have in there. And I'll give away one of them, maybe two of them, to you right now. And that is Anthony Souter, the, the doctor who is pursuing Keisha. He is a suitor. And if you recall, uh, Odysseus's wife is being pursued by suitors. So his last name is Souter. The main suitor was named Antonis. And that's, this is Anthony Souter. So Anthony Souter. So that is a reference to, uh, the, uh, the suitors who were pursuing uh, his wife. Right. Uh, there is a cyclops in my story. Uh, there are sirens in the story. 
There are lotus eaters in my story. And even the notion of the trip itself, um, when he, um, when he uh, gets this, rents this car from his friend, the uh, limo driver, he takes a look and he sees that the license plate says Calypso on the back. And so Calypso is a goddess who has a central role in the Odyssey. So there are a lot of little references like that throughout the story. And there's some bigger ones. I mean, the, the winds themselves are a reference. So I actually have a list uh, that I made of about 29 specific references to the Odyssey. So even though I've given away a couple of them, uh, there are many others. And it's it's kind of like unearthing Easter eggs as you're <laughs> going along. Is oh, wait a minute. I know what this is. Yep. This is this is a reference to the Odyssey. So it, it's, a, it's a little thing to look for as a person's reading this story. That's cool. Uh, speaking of other authors, what authors have been there for you over the years of you know, from, from any, at any age that, that always stuck by you. The, um, authors that I have, let's, let's say both thriller and non-thriller authors. So the non-thriller authors that I've really loved over the years, uh, number one is Philip Roth. I've really, really loved Philip Roth and Philip Roth, uh, taught me and other writers that we could, uh, that we had to break out of ourselves. We yeah. had to pretend that we had no parents or family or loved ones so that we could write an honest story. Um, I love uh, Michael Chabon. Michael Chabon showed us that in a, um, in a non um, fictional, I'm sorry, in a fictional story, that's a non fantasy story that we can create uh, a world and that we uh, in his Yiddish policeman's union, for example, he creates a whole world and we uh, can create a world. So I, I love writers like that. On the, um, on the uh, thriller story, uh, there's so many writers. One thing that I did in my story, you mentioned before that I switch between characters. James Patterson does that often in his stories as well. And in his early Alex Cross stories, uh, whenever we were in a chapter with Alex Cross, it's in first person when it's in a chapter uh, that is where, where Alex is not the point of view character. There are other characters. It's in third person. So I did that same thing that I learned from James Patterson. I'd like to say I learned it at the knee of James Patterson, but I, I learned it reading uh, James Patterson. Uh, writers that uh, that play a role in the kind of writing that I do, which is trying to incorporate significant environmental issues into my story, are people like Michael Crichton, who did yeah. that very, very successfully and you know, you didn't realize that when you were watching, reading or later watching uh, Jurassic Park, for example, that you were getting a whole lecture, college grade lecture on genetics and on paleontology. And, uh, of course, uh, Tom Clancy, another writer who's now gone, uh, who uh, showed us that you could incorporate engineering, not yep. just engineering, but you could incorporate uh, engineering and nuclear submarines and sonar into a story that was an engaging story that sold at this point, I think now over 5 million books where they made a movie from it and they have an ongoing TV series. Um, uh, and understanding that part of that and part of the intrigue of that part of the fun of that is all of the technical stuff. So there's a couple of examples, a writer that I've been reading a lot of lately that I really love is uh, James Lee Burke who is just an outstanding writer and shows you that uh, thrillers 
uh, can be very literary and very and, and, the, and writers can write um, very lyrical writing and still have it be a, a thriller. He, he's he's just an outstanding writer. So there's there's a few examples for you. That's cool. Well, you are now retired, and you talk about having the time to write. And you had made a, a point of uh, your routine is like a set one to some extent. Give us give everybody's different, but give us an idea of what you do to keep the creative process rolling. I'm retired as a lawyer, so it's been six years now since I practiced law. But uh, as a writer, what, what, before I retired, I was writing for easily uh, 10 years before that. Right. I had this day job that required me to uh, devote 100% of my effort to being a lawyer, and I did. And I would come home at night and uh, would want to write. And what I did was I would start writing at 8 or 9 o'clock at night, and then I'd write for a couple of hours until I was too exhausted, and then I'd go to bed. And I did that night after night. And um, I understand that um, that uh, John Grisham uh, would write early in the morning. So he would get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, write until about 8 o'clock in the morning, and then he'd practice law. So I was doing it the opposite uh, once I retired from practicing law and I had my days to myself, I started writing first thing in the morning. So 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning, I'm writing. And I'll write until about lunchtime. I'll have some lunch. Sometimes I'll write again in the afternoon, but I find my most creative time is first thing in the morning. Cool. And then uh, what I do in the afternoon is what I call the business of books. And you as a writer can certainly appreciate that. And that is there's, you know, writers are really small businesses. Yep. Now, if you're John Grisham, for example, you're a big business. If you're Stephen King, you're a really big business. <laughs> and, um, but there's all of this business stuff that you have to do. And I don't have, I don't have people. I am the people. And so if somebody has to reach out, you know, to arrange a, um, an interview or, um, to, uh, you know, work with the, uh, publisher, that's me and I'm doing all that stuff. And I try to organize that for the afternoons. Yeah. I'm, as I'm working from home more now and I'm not having to travel about as much, I'm finding myself in the same situation of I've got some time now that I have to, you know, try to set up events, figure out, okay, I had to submit this book for an award. Am I going to do this or do that? And it, it, I find it takes away from the enjoyment of my writing. But then again, uh, I also have to write. I mean, that's people have asked about my writing, and I'm like, I've written all my life. And, you know, working in broadcasting, I've written everything from public service announcements to commercial copy. And then when I was in a band, I wrote songs for the band because I just did. And the long form thing didn't come around for many years because I just didn't feel that I could get there. And then once I started, mapping that out i would rather just write but i do realize there's there's a job to this and i guess that leads to um the thing that drives us and your writing has highlighted this environmental fiction yes has become more popular in recent years uh had a recent guest a.e faulkner on my program talk about uh the environment in her young adult series and the impact it has on people and the decisions they make and what they do. Uh, I think our issues, it can't be denied that climate change is front and center. And uh, researchers have said it, and I brought one up about how government and business from some science perspective is reactive. It's not proactive, and that needs to change. What, what does your experience give you that says we've got to move that way, and how do you think we can do it? Do we have another four hours for this uh, program? Because, 
you're you're asking a gigantic question. Uh, yes, you're right. Uh, we have um, you know the the existential issue of our lives right now, which is climate change. And one of the reasons I wrote Reap the Wind was so that I would be able to portray climate change in a fictional way so that readers who are reading an exciting story, they're reading it to see what happens to Josh, they're reading to see what, how he gets through this, these storms and how he's going to do that, uh, also are learning a lot about climate change. And that was something that I built into my story. But uh, there is still a substantial portion of our population here in the United States that don't believe that climate change is a real thing, or they don't believe that climate change is an important issue, or they think that it's overblown. And uh, that, by the way, goes against all science. And when I say all science, I mean, other than the guys who used to work for the cigarette industry, the scientists who are you know, largely out there and who are, are the ones who are in the vast majority um, absolutely take a strong position that climate change is a real thing. It's man-induced, and it's caused largely by the burning of fossil fuels. So we need to start getting away from that, and that's one of the things that I point out in this story. In my previous stories, by the way, in Drink uh, to Every Beast, um, I was dealing with dumping of hazardous waste. In yep. Mid-Rage, I was dealing with coal mining, and in my last book, Strange Fire, I was dealing with fracking. So I try to point out to the readers uh, through my story, how it is that we have these various problems and how we should deal with them. But the other thing I do, and this is really important, is that I acknowledge that for most things, there are two sides to the issue. There are two sides to the fracking debate, two sides to the mining debate, two sides to the uh, climate change debate. Right. So as you know, as you're reading this, you have Diane who takes the anti-climate change position. You have Josh who takes the pro-climate change position. You have Jeff who is sort of in the middle and he's, he's, he's saying he doesn't really know. He's just, he's just listening to the two of them argue it out. So it's, I think it's very important to educate people. And I think that's something that we need to do as human beings. We need to be able to uh, take action uh, to protect our, ourselves and our children. I think we have to leave it right there. My guest is Joel Burkett. Reap the Wind, his latest, which is available through Sunbury Press Books and fine retailers as well as online. Joel, is always a pleasure. Tori, thank you very much. This has been great. I enjoy uh, these interviews, and I hope to come back again sometime soon. You've been listening to the Brown Posey Press Show with your host, Tori Gates. Find his works, including Searching for Roy Buchanan, Call It Love, and Shake Hands with the Devil, along with more independent authors of fiction and nonfiction at sunburypress.com. Thank you for listening. This is the BookSpeak Network.